0: to the marathon medic podcast my name's amy and i'm a junior doctor with an interest in sports medicine this is a special one-off episode all about the foot i'm chatting to sports podiatrist ian griffiths about foot health running shoes orthoses and more so hi ian thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me i came across your your instagram and all the the great information you had about feet so i thought it'd be really useful to chat with you and ask you some more questions because i think there's a lot that i still don't know um so thank you so much.
1: No, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be invited. And uh, it's also nice to know that there is someone out there that looks at my Instagram. That's that's a relief.
0: <laughs> there was one the other day that said don't trust runners, though. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that made me. I am a runner myself, so I feel like I'm okay to say that. I didn't feel like it. I wasn't firing shots at, at, at something I'm not. So I felt like it was fair game. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's very true as well. Um, so could you just start off by telling everyone a little bit about yourself um, and how you got into podiatry as well?
1: Yeah, of course. So um my my name's Ian Griffiths, and I am based in in London. Um, I uh, qualified as a podiatrist in uh, two thousand and three um and prior to that uh as i was i was actually saying this to someone the other day because we, we we get asked this question quite a lot about podiatry i think it, it comes from a position of what why would anyone choose to look at feet for the rest of their career so to speak but um i never grew up desiring uh podiatry as a career i'll be honest i think as a teenager i probably didn't know what it was um but my only passion and love outside of school was sport. I just loved watching it, loved playing it. Um, my only real aptitude for anything inside school was was the sciences and maths. So by any um, by any kind of quiz or, or, or you know um, sort of choose your career kind of algorithm that you you pump all this information into, what you end up with is a list of medical professions. Um, And as a teenager, I recall spending time with each one of them um, and sort of seeing which one looked most interesting. And the the day I spent with the podiatrist was um, at the time, we're going back to 1999 now. Uh, I still remember him. He was great and he was so enthusiastic and he loved his job. And I just thought, wow, you know, this is a way I can... Uh, get to in, in, ingrain myself or you know, within the sporting community because um, I'm never going to be good enough to be a sportsman or athlete myself. So I may as well be one of those peripheral, <laughs> peripheral team members. So I did my bachelor's degree in in podiatric medicine. I then did a postgraduate certificate in sports podiatry, and then I did my master's degree in um, sports and exercise medicine and sports injury. Um, because the great thing about podiatry, as I'm sure you already know, is that that you can take that initial bachelor's degree and you can sort of specialize i guess like any branch of medicine into what sort of um, demographic or kind of people you'd like to see so some of my friends i trained with have gone on to become sort of a diabetes specialists and wound care and tissue viability specialists. some have gone into pediatrics some look after the, the geriatric foot um you know the at risk foot uh, some have gone down the route of more more surgical um, podiatric surgery type of approach and I for me it was always sports podiatry musculoskeletal medicine so that's what I did all my postgraduate study And so I'm very fortunate that in the private practice I now work in in London 3 days a week I I get to see only only people with with musculoskeletal complaints and, and sporting injuries so just that small sort of subspecialty within within my podiatry profession
0: and you mentioned that you're really into sports yourself so you're a runner is that your main kind of interest or other sports as well
1: yeah, running is the the main one now uh, historically when i was younger i had more time and pre pre-children when i could disappear for the whole of a saturday afternoon uh, it was football um but yeah present day it's running uh, and golf uh, they they're the two kind of things i i spend my free time doing i play golf with my oldest son i uh i run i love golf i'm not i'm viciously average at it um as i am at running i should probably add <laughs> uh, but uh i'm very enthusiastic and uh i knew that golf when it replaced football didn't quite give me that uh same that same feeling of competitiveness necessarily it didn't certainly wasn't as as uh it wasn't as able to maintain my cardiovascular fitness, my, my, my you know, the, my thinking time, you know, golf's great, but I, I needed something a bit more active. Um, so yeah, I'd always run after a ball. So I wasn't running after a ball anymore. I just, I just, I just started running. So yeah, it's mostly running now for sure.
0: And do you tend to see mainly runners that are coming in to see you or is it a variety of sports?
1: In Practice, I would say 90% are, are runners. And if they're playing other sports, they're probably running re- running related sports. Um, the work I do outside of the private practice with some of the um, I'm fortunate enough to work with some professional teams, uh, so cr- a cricket team, a couple of Premier League football teams, the European golf tour, um, and England rugby as well. So we, I'm not saying we only see runners, we see people from all, all sports, but – most of those involve running, and running is is a yeah. big, big demand on the body. When we're, you know, the lower limb and foot and ankle uh, sort of specialists that we are, that is uh, a fairly important part of the body when it comes to running. <laughs> you know, um, our main interaction with our environment, uh, our only interaction with our environment is our is our foot. Um, so, in private practice, I would say all the people, you know, the the the, the sort of lawyers, the accountants, the, you know, the the, the, the non elite sports people that are coming to see us in clinic for private consultations. Nine times out of 10, yes, it, they, are, they are a runner for sure.
0: And I think um, a lot of runners, myself included, if I got an injury, I think naturally it's our first thought to seek the help of a physio. So in what situation do you think actually runners should consider speaking to a sports podiatrist, either alongside a physio or actually maybe first
1: Yeah, yeah. your your point is incredibly well made. In that, uh, and I don't have, I'm I'm not, I don't get upset by someone saying I'm going to I'm going to seek a physio. I think I would far, that's far preferable seeking someone to doing the alternative that we see runners do, which is uh, soliciting opinions from strangers on the internet. You know, (laughs) I'd much rather (laughs) you went and I don't upset you going to see a physio rather than a podiatrist. I'd rather you saw anyone than than ask strangers on the internet what worked for them because we know that's kind of a whole thing in the in the running community. and you're absolutely right with your comment that um, it may well be that you don't just see one specialist. A, a lot of uh, sports injuries do best with a multi a multimodal approach, uh, so a team a team approach. So uh, a lot of the a lot well almost all of, if not all of the runners we see with say knee problems patellofemoral type symptoms uh, will end up seeing myself and the physio at some point. Um, uh, you know. There aren't many problems that couldn't benefit from having a that kind of dual approach but I would say with with regards to what we do um, and just I, I don't know if I'm, I'm hoping everyone's familiar with what podiatry is but if I think if you if you're not and you're your first thing you, you now think to do is to reach for your phone and Google what is podiatry <clears throat> the Wikipedia or dictionary modern day dictionary definition of podiatry I, I suspect is something along the lines of it being the branch of medicine that that, um, that pertains to the study, the assessment, the diagnosis, and the management of foot, ankle, and lower extremity problems. I think that's prob- somewhere that's probably the the, the loosest uh, one from memory I can think of. That doesn't mean every lower limb problem needs to come to, to a podiatrist, of course. Um, also you know, as podiatrists specialize in different areas, it may well be that some are very, very happy seeing you for a knee problem, but others it may be best to see the physio first. Um, if I explain the way it works in our team, um, even if people do go and see the physio first and the physios that I work with them because we're, we're such a good team, they will then have that discussion of, okay, there's, there's always things a physio can do. Um, reassurance, diagnosis, education, you know advice on training habits uh, which is the, the, the big one um, and if then as part of that and, and maybe even some home homework that they give you some rehabs and some, some um, things to improve strength and tissue capacity but at some point the physios i work with if they feel that there's, there's a there's a need for a podiatric kind of pair of eyes they will then flag that so you go you might go and see the physio first but in good teams you'll probably then be passed on to the podiatrist if they think that we can uh, we, we can help and ultimately in that sort of setting what we will usually do is be responsible for uh, assessing that your patterns of movement so how are you how are you moving over the ground when you run um, is there anything in the way you move, whether it be your technique, your stride length, your cadence, your step width, or whether indeed it be the, the classic sort of mechanics of your foot, so what it does when it hits the ground? Is there anything we see there that we think may correlate with the reason that you, you developed the problem in the first place or that we think may, we may have some wiggle room to improve to mitigate the risk of it happening again or to just make you a, a stronger, uh, more robust uh, runner in general?
0: and it may be a difficult question is there is this quite an individualized thing so for each runner do you notice different weaknesses or problems with their biomechanics or do you find generally when you see uh runners say that weekend warriors so people that are just going out the weekends and doing loads of running do you notice particular themes about where people need to improve
1: so with regard to um visual observations and movement patterns and you know what someone looks like and how they move and their alignment um variation is is wide and vast and that is completely normal we need to accept that and i know that sits uncomfortably with a lot of runners in particular because they mm-hmm. go they go searching for answers they go searching for answers of what is the best cadence what is the best drop of running shoe what what you know they want to know especially the ones who are very new to running what do i need to buy what do i need to do how do i need to do x y z and the thought process of there being one way for all runners to do something the more you 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 think about how variable the human race is you know we're all different we we all have different strengths different weaknesses we all have different goals um you know the idea of there being one cadence or one drop or one running technique or one running shoe for any given individual uh just becomes really difficult to even even understand how we can subscribe to that but that's what runners want they want they want black and white dichotomous answers which is difficult no but so no blanket approaches so yes with regard to the things we see every runner that comes in to see any of us in clinic is an individual and an n equals one case study if you will um with regard to the themes that emerge uh you know we are seeing injured runners and injured runners do as a group of of as a group of individuals, as we've just said, they do share that we do see themes emerge as, as you do in clinical practice over the years. Um, but those themes are probably more behavioral and psychological than they are anatomical or, or biomechanical, if that makes sense. So it isn't the case that we say we always see, uh, you know, injured runners with certain foot posture or we always see injured runners with leg length differences. That That's not the case. But we do always see injured runners with certain traits certain behaviors and the biggest one is is training error it always comes back to training error so when we look at uh, our weekend warriors to, to use that term uh, affectionately not and, and not in a negative way um because i'm one myself of course uh, when we look at their their behaviors their habits the way the way they train where they source their information from what we notice is is a really really strong theme of um of things that when brought together, are the perfect storm to increase injury risk. And we should say the the risk of injury when running is always greater than zero. You know, we we can never prevent injury, but we can try and do things to to mitigate it. So what we tend to find is that most people are very time poor um, because of work, because of family, because of life, and that's completely understandable. Um, So what what they're then doing is they're crowbarring whatever their their training or goals are into the remaining time they have, and they don't always – identify whether that's um a, a happy marriage so to speak so you know if you want to train for a two and a half hour marathon but you've only got five hours a week to spare you know right from the offset you need someone to tell you that these things don't what don't marry up very well um, so we see people crow by their training around we also see uh, i think the key thing we always ask for, from any of our runners whether they're doing their first park run or whether they're doing um their 15th london marathon is although the ones are doing the 15th london marathon have usually usually understand this by this point is we need to build everything whatever we do whatever we say we need to be it needs to be built on a bed of consistency and when we look at the the strava or, or you know this just tends to be what we do now when a runner comes into clinic the easiest thing we used to sit there and ask them about their their training habits and how much they train and their frequency their volume their intensity and they either we had to trust they remembered or trust they they, they sort of. Uh, Articulated it well enough. Now we just say, pass me a Strava, give me a phone, let me have a look at your Strava. And it's all there. They can't hide from it. And what we see with injured runners, you know, when we look at those those past six, eight, ten, twelve weeks is, is, is like a mountain range, you know, on the Strava Green uh, mountain range where it tells you your weekly volumes. Um, we see three weeks of nothing followed by a week of 40 kilometers followed by a week of 10 kilometers follow you know it's really up really down peaks and troughs peaks and troughs and human tissues bone muscle tendon um they hate holidays and they hate surprises and what the way that most weekend warriors train unfortunately is is they're in a cycle of doing a little bit too much too soon after having done a bit too little for too long Um, being much, much more consistent is, is the key thing. So we often see runners who've come to us injured and we say, to them, how did this happen? And the story transpires that they, they they went to the running club or they spoke to a friend or a colleague and they said, I just want to get faster. So their friend gave them a beautiful hill sprint session or a lovely technical interval session, or they pulled one off the internet, all, 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 all which is fine. But when you look at their last 10 weeks of training, there's just been no consistency to build it on top of, um, and it's like, you know, just just spending three months hanging out in, in zone two, building a really nice big aerobic base, and then building the specialist sessions on top of that that are going to place more demand on your tissues in general is probably going to be a safer way to do this. Um, so I think it's because of human nature. It's because of uh, perhaps human impatience, because we always want to be better than we are, and we always don't want to commit to the the really dull the really boring the really mundane stuff it's it's the stuff that we have to do when no one's looking it's getting out there tonight in the dark when it's just got cold and just started to rain it's all that stuff that when we when, in april when we sit and we watch tv and we watch the london marathon and we see all these amazing in, inspirational things and we feel all emotional and as a as a non-runner we perhaps think i'm going to do that next year what you're seeing is the end point of, of, of months and months and months of consistency. And the trait that all injured runners that we see seem to share is those those errors in training, that those what we would refer to as load management problems. So you've asked something of your body or your body's tissues that at that moment in time – it was not able to tolerate you've exceeded you know you've exceeded its ability to tolerate something and over time the training effect of course as you know means that if we do this in a slow and gradual uh, safe way if we gradually expose our body to more things in a sensible way it adapts and becomes robust and resilient and it can cope with much more in the future than it did in the past but making that really big jump is probably the biggest cause of injury bigger bigger cause than what your foot's doing to be honest
0: that's talking to me a lot. I'm feeling a little bit guilty about my, <laughs> my previous training weeks.
1: I'm not attacking, I, I, I promise I'm not <laughs> attacking anyone.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I completely, um, a lot of that resonated with me. I think it's human nature to just want to go out and especially if you've had a stressful day as well, just like go on just a faster run when maybe actually you do need to take it easier and build it up. I think another point for, for me, definitely something that I've learned over the last few months, having neglected it for a while, is the importance of strength work. Um, I don't personally enjoy it. I'd much rather go out on a run, but I realise I can't build up my distance without some of that strength work. And I always, I kind of know I need to build my, my glutes and all these other different muscles in my lower limbs and never once. So I actually thought about foot strength. So is there anything that runners should be doing to improve their foot health or foot strength? Do you prescribe certain exercises?
1: Um, we, I mean, certainly there are exercises you can do for the intrinsics of of, of the foot um, and they're, they're well known and they're well documented. And there's obviously some people out there uh, who, who think they are the, the pinnacle of what we need to do. They are the priority and, and certain promises are sometimes attached with getting strong feet. Now, to, to your earlier point, I think being strong as a runner. Is, is always a positive and never a negative that you know the stronger you can be the the, the better you will be and, and you're not alone in saying well why would i why would i run on a monday you know wh- sorry why would i go to the gym on a monday when i'd ru- well, i don't really enjoy the gym and, and actually I'm, i'd rather go for a run on a monday but it does it does make you a better runner to, to spend some time not running and doing the things supplementary to your running and and the biggest uh, i should have mentioned it pr- before but the biggest crazy thing i see uh weekend warriors and new runners doing is subscribing to this principle of the run streak um it makes no sense to me why people think this is a thing i think it's i think it's a social media thing i think they just Mm -hmm. want to be seen to be posting something every day but the run streak is the enemy of of the new runner the weekend warrior for two reasons firstly um there's no rest days and any good program, always a rest day is just as part of much of the program as your as your interval session. You know, it's an important session in itself. But also, if you've got no rest days, then you're less likely to do your strength work uh, because, you know, you're running every day. You're running seven days a week, 30 days a month. Um, so coming back to the foot strength thing, I would say um, the evidence, if we lean into the scientific literature very briefly, um isn't particularly overwhelming with regard to the benefits so i'm not saying that you can't go onto instagram and and see someone's account that promises the world from having strong feet and it will reduce your injury and it will improve your performance but i don't know that the, the data supports that um and i don't know if you've ever tried to do intrinsic foot muscle exercises but they're you know, if you don't really enjoy doing strength work, you know, for example, you know, whatever whatever that may entail for people, squats, deadlifts. Um, if you don't enjoy that, you're really not going to enjoy intrinsic foot muscle exercises because they're they're just pretty boring to do. And for what the time you have to spend doing them, the input you have to give for the potential output you're going to get is is, is a bit of a mismatch for me. And I would say, if we have runners like yourself that, that are very open and honest and say. I'm not really a big fan of doing strength I know I need to do it. I mean, you're you're one step ahead of some people because at least you admit you need to do it, right? But I mean, I know I need to do it. I don't enjoy doing it. It's a real chore to do it. With those people, you need to make sure that what they do that they're doing the big wins first. So the two muscle groups that that we would say, and you've mentioned one of them, the glutes and and the calf complex, in particular the soleus component of the calf complex. For me, if I see someone that 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 sits at a desk all day or or, you know has a fairly sedentary day and they want to maintain a high running volume we know that these muscles um are very very important for running so if i know that someone's not wasting but using 30 minutes of their time to do foot intrinsic exercises at a cost of not doing hip abduction stuff glute max stuff seated calf raises for their soleus then not only is that intrinsic foot muscle exercise n- negligible with how much benefit it's going to give you you could argue it's having a de- having a detrimental effect because it's robbing you of time where you could be doing something a bit more priority so if you're doing everything beautifully you know you're doing you're doing your your proximal strength stuff your hip and your your glute strength stuff you're doing your soleus stuff you're eating well you're sleeping well all those other things that we know are important um you are training sensibly. You're having rest days. If you're if you're nailing it, which no runner does, myself included, by the way. But if you are if you are nailing it, and you say, "Hey, I've read something in Runners World about crunching up, picking up a pencil, or crunching a towel of my feet." What do you think? I'd say go for it, absolutely. But there's not many runners, I think, that, that come under that category. And I hate the idea of them not wasting time, but spending time doing something lower down the priority list, if that makes sense
0: yeah no that, that makes a lot of sense and I think strength work does take quite a lot of time doesn't it so you do need to definitely make sure it's something that preferably you enjoy at least a little bit to get you motivated absolutely and it's also going to pay off in the long term um I feel like we can't talk about feet without talking about shoes agree, I think agree, yeah. half of why half of why runners run is to buy new running shoes agree. um so what what tips would you give to people that are buying running shoes because I think we're bombarded with a lot of um Bright colours, fancy designs, bold statements about what a shoe can do. So for a runner going into a running store, what would be your kind of main bits of advice?
1: Yeah, it's the big question, isn't it? Um, and I, I agree, buying shoes and having a, a, you know, a, a range of shoes is one of the most fun bits about being a runner. Um, I, my, my wife's constantly... Telling me off for my growing shoe collection, um, and she's now employed what we refer to in our house as the nightclub policy, which is a one-in-one-out policy. So now she says, for every pair of shoes that comes in the house, a pair of shoes has to has to leave the house. Um, so I have to sneak them in now. But it, it is it's fun. But but there's also a it's not just fun to get something new or get something a different colorway. Um, there is reasonable sense in having a range of different shoes, for, which for reasons we'll, we'll probably come onto. Um, because I think historically, you'd go into a running store, you'd see a professional of some kind. They would advise you on the shoe that was best for you, based on whatever uh, decision they made at the time. And then, for whatever reason, it was it was assumed that was a that was a life sentence. So I, I still see people now, as a, you may do, where they come in and they're in an Asics Kiano twenty six, and I say, okay, so. You know, talk talk to me about your shoes. What do you run in? You, oh, this is the only shoe I run in. I do it every single run, every single session in this shoe, and I have done for ten years. I've had the twenty six, the twenty five, the twenty four, the twenty three. They're the kind of person that will lose their mind if if Asics ever discontinued that that model, because now what do I do? I've always I found my shoe, and it's so strange to me that that anyone would consider a shoe a life sentence. Like ten years ago, it you know whether it was a right or wrong recommendation is 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 one discussion, but actually. Even if it was the perfect recommendation at that time, in ten years you must have evolved or changed as a runner in some way. That perhaps there's a there's a different shoe that's more appropriate for you now. Or the way we tend to frame it is different shoes for different tasks. So rather than matching the human, the human or the human's foot to a specific shoe, which is kind of what the model has been, which is you need a neutral shoe, you need a stability shoe. Um, You speak to any runner that's been running for a long period of time or or is much more experienced or runs to a good level, and they don't just have one pair of shoes. Far from it. They have multiple pairs, and not just because they love buying shoes, but because they know that on a day they wake up and their calves are a bit sore because of yesterday's interval session, there's a certain pair of shoes they may reach for because they know that these shoes make their calves feel better. On a day that they're doing some speed work, they'll reach for that pair of shoes. On a day that it's race day, they'll reach for that pair of shoes. The long, slow, steady Sunday, you know, two-hour job, they'll reach for a different pair of shoes. Shoes have 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 tasks, so I think the problem we have is people are so fearful that they 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 should move around and wear different shoes because you know I I was told I needed this shoe because my foot does X, Y, or Z, Um, and like I say, uh, the shoe's been given way too much um, attention and credit for its ability to either injure people or reduce injury risk i'm not saying it's completely irrelevant and it's not important but it's far more nuanced than than i think people appreciate and again it it speaks back to runners wanting answers what cadence do i run at? what drop do i need do i need a stability shoe or a neutral shoe and and you know uh it's, it's there are no blanket approaches to these things so i would say to most runners um and these are And we should probably, I always forget to do this, we should probably talk about uninjured runners and injured runners separately here. Um, So we'll talk about the uninjured runners first. They're the most challenging because you're uninjured, you go into a store, you want some advice, perhaps you're new and you're not sure because there's a a, a wall of shoes in front of you. It's a bit overwhelming. And you say, okay, uh, I'm sort of at the mercy of the person selling me these shoes here. How do we advise the uninjured new runner which shoes to buy that are best for them? It's a really, really the the most challenging task. Um, And the reason it's challenging is because we're not as good as we all pretend to be at knowing exactly what causes injury in the first place. Injury is complex and it's multifactorial. So they're really, really challenging cases. And most of the time when we're trying to find the best shoe, what people are referring to with the best is, the shoe that's going to mitigate injury risk, if that's what shoes can do, and the shoe that's going to improve performance—I uh, think they're the two things that people are looking for. Um, now, we'll we'll not talk about performance because more recently we have good data that certain shoes do improve performance. There's no denying that <laughs> now, present you know present day. But historically, we didn't have that, so you know people would be matching the shoes to what their foot posture was, or what their arch height was, or you know whether they'd been labelled a pronator or a supernator, You know, in air quotes. Um, I think, again, coming back to what what are the big wins and let's do the big wins first or an analogy I've stolen from a physiotherapy colleague of mine, which is um, you know, if we've got a glass jar um, and we've got pebbles and sand, big pebbles and sand, let's make sure all the big pebbles are in first and then we pour in the sand to fill in the gaps around it rather than fill the jar with sand first and there's no room for the big pebbles. So the big pebbles when it comes to injury risk are the boring stuff we've just kind of alluded to consistency good training habits sleep nutrition the big win is not buying a certain pair of shoes and then feeling like you've got free pass to go and train like a maniac and do whatever do whatever you want so if you're doing all of the big things first you can probably to a certain extent be go into the store and be led by comfort um comfort being a very uh personal thing and also c- your comfort will vary day to day so your what you find comfortable uh, and one day isn't always what you find the most comfortable next day. So even that in itself is a bit blurry. But you probably find that based on the, the model of the shoe, <clears throat> excuse me, the um the manufacturer, I should say, um, and knowing that some manufacturers make their shoes slightly wider than others. And if you've got a wide foot or a narrow foot, you'll find some people say, sort of generally, I don't really like added ass, they come up a bit narrow, which which is absolutely small, absolutely true. Uh, you know, New Balance Brooks come up a bit wider, but again, when you go onto the running shoe forums and, and talk, you know, look at the running shoe geeks nerding out, you, you only find that out by by getting out there and getting your feet into shoes. Um, you know, if you bought an Asics Kyano ten years ago, you don't even know what other shoes feel like present day. You're too, you've you've been too scared into thinking that you need to stay in in this shoe. So most people now, and I'm the same. <clears throat> we can sort of say okay i know that that shoe comes up a bit narrow but i know that i'm a size 10 in that model and i'm a size 10 you know i'm a size 10 in nike but i need to wear an 11 in adidas for example you know people learn their ways around it um so when you're buying shoes i I wish i had better answers i'm conscious that runners potentially listening are thinking just tell me what i need to look for you know do i need cushioning do i need zero drop do i need a you know and the answer is um it depends you know if you're uninjured Um, We don't have good data as to which shoe is going to be best for you. So to a certain extent, do the best you can, which is be be driven by comfort and know that that's only a really small piece of the puzzle when it comes to injury and performance anyway. All the other stuff that you can be doing is probably more important. Now, when we come to injured runners, this is different. And I'm very spoiled in that if I'm seeing a runner, they're probably injured, uh, which is not good for them, but it's good for me because what it suddenly gives me now is context. and if someone comes in, what we can do with their footwear is we can make a recommendation based on what we're trying to achieve at that time. Um, so we, we sort of loosely refer to it as pathology specific prescribing. So what we mean by that is if you have, um, a very sensitive Achilles tendon, um, or you have, you're recovering from a calf strain, um, then, and it makes sense that we can say, right, the best shoe for you right now is a shoe with a higher drop because a higher drop will reduce some of those pulling forces, those tensile forces on the Achilles. And we need to be really clear that that isn't us saying this person needs a high drop shoe as a, as a life sentence. You know, A shoe recommendation is, is contextual and temporal, meaning at that moment in time, that person probably needs a high drop shoe to, to take a bit of load off their calf. Likewise, if they have a, a posterior ankle impingement, like a, an accessory bone there, like an os trigonum or an irritated uh, sort of Kager's fat pad, um, then being in that, that ankle, being in that slightly plantar flex position of a high drop is probably going to be more 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 irritable than helpful. So we may guide those people towards a low drop shoe at that moment in time. Um in the forefoot, when we've got things, runners may be familiar with things like Morton's neuromas and burses, and and you know, those sort of uh, space occupying lesions. They're really sensitive to compression. They're the ones where runners will be familiar that they feel much worse in their work shoes or their brogues or their formal shoes than they do when they're barefoot because they're being the foot's being squeezed and that that swollen nerve in between the metatarsals is being sort of compressed. They're the ones that we might guide towards a shoe with a wider toe box. Um, they also do quite well with rocker rocker soles, so, you know the kind of um, the, the the large toe spring shoes or the rocker sole geometry that Hocker have. But a lot of them, a lot of these uh, companies have them now. And some of the carbon plated shoes are quite aggressively toe sprung as well. They're really good for people with with irritable uh, toe joints, metatarsophalangeal joints. So if you've got a really sore or, or even a really stiff or even arthritic big toe joint ie it doesn't bend much and when it does bend it hurts then a stiff forefoot with a rocker sole is going to feel like a dream to you because uh, ultimately it's going to take some of the load off those tissues so i'd love runners to appreciate that when we're recommending shoes we we should we're usually doing so in the context of something is sore or sensitive we want to offload it as part of that recovery program but we also want to keep runners moving and running as best we can um so, rather than recommending shoes based on your foot posture or your alignment or your, you know, um, and the, therefore the shoe then correcting you and being a life sentence that you rely on or, or are dependent on, think of shoes as just one of the tools that can modify the way loads are distributed around the lower the lower limb, and at different times and di- different days and in areas of different soreness, different shoes will be applicable.
0: I think I think that's really um, useful to know, and I think we're often trapped and thinking that we need a certain thing and actually we need to be a bit more flexible and just try things out one thing uh i wanted to ask you actually which is a, a bit of a myth that i've never known is true is that after you run you should leave your shoes 24 hours for the cushion to re-expand and i think this is a common held belief i actually have no idea if it's based on any evidence which <laughs> any light on that.
1: yeah it's really interesting the the, the the shoe material the material science data is kind of what we're talking about here so i think um we used to, you, all shoes used to essentially be made of some version of EVA. So, you know, if you go back 10, 15 years, you had all of the, the papers that looked at running and running shoes and their, their ability or their influence or interaction with injury. And then you had, you went into the engineering journals and you had how this how these materials responded to cyclical loads. So they were put in a, in, a, in a lab and sort of repetitively and cyclically loaded to try and mimic the foot landing, um, you know, as it does when we run. Um, so we do have some data or there is da- there are data that, that exists that tell us, you know, when EVA sort of loses its its material properties and at what, you know, how, after how many uh, load cycles and therefore that can be extrapolated to when should we change our shoes after so and so many kilometers. But to my knowledge, we have never had those two things marry. So we've got the lab based engineering work. We've got the, the clinical or the, the pragmatic real world work um but to my knowledge we've we've never i'm not aware of a single paper that's ever said right let's take some running shoes that have just been worn and have a look at I think the theory was that foam or you know midsole materials compress as we load them um if we go out for a run, then you know, in theory, you'd measure the stack height of the midsole before the run. You'd measure the stack height after the run, and perhaps because it's compressed, it would be slightly lower. Um, and it needed time to then kind of, but almost like a memory foam mattress. Visualize it like that. Yeah. It need, you know, I think the idea was, that, and I've heard this this myth myself. Give it twenty four hours, forty hours for it to kind of return to its aforementioned uh, aforementioned state. I don't think there's any science behind it at all. And obviously, we've now got uh m- many more different materials that we're using in midsoles, other than, than just eva um and again if you subscribe to the principle of rotating shoes um because shoes are fun to buy and because of the reasons we've said like your shoe should probably be dependent on the task you're doing that day um it's probably rare you wear the same shoe two days in a row anyway for most runners i speak to um that said, the last three days in a row that I, the three runs that I've done, um, I've done in exactly the same shoe because they've just been three easy runs, and it's my favorite favorite easy run shoe. And I'm not too worried or concerned about uh, wearing it three sessions in a row. But again, even if you only have, I could, even if there was science behind this, which I don't think there is, I could really only see it being a problem if a runner had one pair of shoes and they were a run streaker and running every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, they're two things that. I would encourage all runners to not be. Don't be the runner that only has one pair of shoes and don't be a run streaker. So, you know, that way, at least if it was true, you're covering your bases anyway. <laughs>
0: um, and on the topic of uh, myths and misconceptions, what do you think are the common misconceptions that runners have, I guess, specifically about the feet or shoes that you kind of wish you could <laughs> wish you could change? <laughs>
1: yeah, there's so many. Um, it is an area that's, that's that seems to be... Uh, saturated with myth um, and belief um, and beliefs are obviously fed into by myths as well and and again because of the runner i feel so sorry for runners because they're surrounded by sources of information the internet the magazines the, the colleagues at the running club which just perpetuate whatever whatever's been out there for a few years and it's been said enough times it just it just it just gets perpetuated so how do you ever break down these these beliefs so i would say there's a couple of big ones um where do we start? So let's start with what runners believe about themselves, because we know runners love talking about running, um, out, my, out, myself and yourself included, uh, which is- uh, I'm quite guilty of that. <laughs> yeah. I will talk running to anyone that, that will, will listen. And if they're not a runner, you can see them just glaze over, but uh, we know runners talk, love talking about running and they love talking about themselves. They love talking about what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, and in our clinical interactions, uh, this is great because what we're trying to do is really, you know, when we're trying to extract a, 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 an accurate history from someone, we want to know these things. So that's why I think runners are great to see in clinic because, you know, whereas at, at, at you know, Christmas dinner, you're, none of your family care about what your last run, the pace your last run was done at. Or as, as medical professionals, we do care. We want all of this information. And it's interesting the way they identify, they self-identify certain things. So the two things I think runners at foot level will very very quickly sort of offer up to me in in clinic is whether they believe what they believe about their magnitude of pronation. So whether they whether they are a pronator or dare we use the word overpronator, so they you know and that may be something they've they've self identified or they've been told or they've Googled, but they will very very quickly tell me you know how much they pronate. Um, like I'm not about to look at it anyway, but yeah, that's the thing that they'll tell me their opinion of how much they pronate. And the other thing they'll tell me is whether they're at what sort of foot strike they adopt. So yeah, I'm a heel striker and I, you know, or I'm a forefoot striker, or a midfoot striker. And the interesting thing is that they're more often than not wrong about themselves. And, and I don't just mean about their pronation magnitude. I mean about their, their foot strike patterns. And there was a paper published, um, uh, I think it was in the last 12 months, uh, Although this year has been so bad, it might have been year before last, uh, year before this, and it showed that when you ask runners, "Are you a heel striker, midfoot striker, forefoot striker?" and they, they very confidently state what they are, then when you look at them running, uh, over fifty percent aren't what they think they are. So I think there's the, people have just got real myths about themselves. They they think uh, this is what they do, and they don't, and they also then think that 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 means something. So the, the myths surrounded by how i strike and what that means so heel striking is bad forefoot striking is good i guess that's one of the key kind of false dichotomies out there that there's one way to run that one way is more natural that heel striking is evil and the cause of all ills um again the scientific literature just does not support this so uh, the big myths i think are what 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 cause injury uh, in that way so they and, and they, they actually they've, they've done this study as well they've done some great studies uh uh, questionnaires to runners so they not only showed that over half the time runners uh, are inaccurate about their own foot strike and their own pronation magnitude they sometimes even get their own arch height wrong they runners often will will say to us i've got high arches or i've got low arches they don't always get that right um because of course their reference point's different isn't it they you know when something is high well it depends on the spectrum of things you've seen um they also give that too much credence as being important as well but that's another thing but the other thing is, they they ask a load of runners, "What do you think the most uh, important things are with regard to injuries? So what do you think cause injury?" And the list of things runners think cause injury are not the list of things that the data tells us are, are the bigger biggest injury uh, risks. So, that they're probably the really really big ones. Runners, the, 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 if we were in a in a ideal world, blue sky thinking, we could somehow permeate this kind of these these kind of levels of education down to runners and. Um, and, and, and sort of say, look, you know, the stuff that you're being fed on a monthly basis in the magazines is pro- possibly a wee bit out of date. We, we did an experiment um, a few years ago now where we dug out an old, I won't say what, what magazine it was, but we dug out an old copy of a running magazine from, I think it was from like 95. And it was in fairly good condition. Um, and we left it on the coffee table of in the reception waiting area of one of our clinics for a month. Um so bear in mind it was it was twenty years old and you know runners when they're sitting there waiting for their appointments they flick through the magazines and I promise you none of them none of them noticed um and that kind of just <laughs> yeah, as, you know as a medical professional, we're constantly trying to learn more we don't have all, we don't pretend to have all the answers present day, but we'd like to think we have more answers um than we did have 20 years ago um even though we don't know what's right in all cases we're 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 better at being less wrong than we used to be but the the things we say in clinic the instagram posts we put up these podcasts that we do unfortunately excuse me don't make a massive dent in the in the sort of uh wider media that runners are subjected to so i would say you know most runners are probably not as well informed as they could be about what causes injury they probably uh, are incorrect and pay too much attention to what their foot looks like, how it behaves, what bit of it hits the ground first, and then finally, how they think injury needs to be treated. They're a little bit off off base with that sometimes as well. Um, and you only need to dive into you know the internet forums, the Facebook groups, um, which I lurk on not to, to to do anything other than to try and get into the psyche of the people I I try and help for a living. Um, and it's just it's a fascinating experience. It's a real kind of um, human behavior sort of experiment here where they'll happily ask strangers on the internet. Those strangers will happily put forward what worked for them um, with no other kind of context whatsoever. And I guess I'd love the idea that a runner would say, okay, I've got a problem. It's probably specific to me. I'm going to go and see someone about it. They're going to tell me you know, things that potentially contributed to this problem. You know, clear, reassure me with what the problem is. Clear any any anything sinister. Give me a management plan or a strategy to to get back on track and hopefully out of this injury experience, I emerge a a a better runner, a stronger runner, or a more robust runner, but also a better informed runner. Um, and you know, you look at any runner that's been through significant injuries; their approach to injury in the future is far better. Um, so I don't know if I've, I've waffled on and I'm not sure if I've I've, I've diverted and I've, I've answered that question particularly well but yeah
0: uh, I think actually I just wanted to ask you on that topic of misinformation and you mentioned lots of the sources which aren't the best for seeking uh, out information about running have you got any tips about where people should go to get good information or do you think it very much is a case of seeing a healthcare professional when it's needed because it's so individualized
1: yeah ideally you you would you would develop a problem and you would see someone. Now, I appreciate that that isn't always possible. For very, there are various hurdles that that, that prevent that from being um, a reasonable option for everyone. Um, and I think this is why people, because of their time poor, or, or because you know, um, often with sports injury, you're you're probably having to go privately. And if you don't have private medical insurance, it can be very costly. So it's costly both in financial terms or and, and in time terms and and. It would be the ideal thing to do because then you can you can get really really tailored advice. Now I think the reason that people go online is is to avoid those hurdles, but also what we know is that a lot of the running injuries we see probably are fairly common. You know, there's a, there's a handful of running injuries that crop up regularly um, for the reasons we've already mentioned, by the way, because they were making the same errors in, in training and things. But I think you could go on and you could say, oh, my shin hurts every time I run, and someone jumps in who says oh, my shin used to hurt every time i ran and i was told i had shin splints and then a third person jumps in and said i rubbed magnesium paste on mine and it was gone within a week and the fourth person jumps in and says i wear i walk i wear compression socks um and i find them really helpful and then a fifth person jumps in and says i foam roll my calf now this person probably does have low level medial tibial stress syndrome you know let's be honest if if a runner's shin hurts and we're thinking you know we're hearing hooves and we're thinking horses rather than zebras that's probably what it is but before we get into all of the un, you know solicited information they've had from or anecdote that of what's worked for me um let's go back a step and say there are other things that can cause shin pain and that some of them are things that we'd probably want to exclude fairly quickly like tibial stress fractures for example and you can't do that on the internet strangers can't do that you know um So I think, you know, it's difficult because there isn't really any way you can go online and get great information. There is great information out there, but it's never going to be tailored to you. And there are a couple of questions, and you know this as a medical professional yourself. When we first meet someone, there are a few questions we ask them fairly quickly to sort of exclude the sinister or to at least see where our level of, you know, is there anything that raises my index of suspicion of this being something more than than it, what it looks like on face value so rather than saying my, my shin hurts when it when it, you know, when i run and then suddenly someone jumping in with the management for it a medical professional would 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 sort of say okay tell me what it feels like and tell me you know can you run through it after the run how long does it hang around for is it interfering is it interrupting your sleep you know is it giving you night pain um all of these questions kind of With the answers to them, we can sort of build up a bit of clinical picture and say, "There's a few things about this I don't like." Then we can obviously ask health questions like, "Okay, we know how much volume you're doing, but you know, are you a 55-year-old menopausal vegetarian who's a heavy smoker? Because now all of those things tell me that your bone capacity probably isn't ideal, and now I've got more suspicion that this may be a bone issue rather than a medial tibial stress syndrome problem." So, these are the these are the nuances to the medical interaction that you won't get on the internet. Um, regardless of the quality of the source, it will never be tailored an individual to you. So I'd like to think the value of seeing a, a medical professional would be the reassurance of what you are dealing with and what you're not dealing with. When we come on to the it worked for me phenomena, um, we're into a whole new world of craziness where um, we know that humans are, all of us are in- incredibly uh, susceptible to, to being tricked by our own minds, to, to, to committing flaws in, or errors in thinking. And sometimes, and the biggest one with these things is the what we call the post hoc fallacy, which is where you do something, and after that moment, something happens and you you attribute the two. So for example, if uh, in a minute I, um, I decide to walk into the kitchen, and then I look out the window and I see it started snowing, it would be ridiculous to say, I made it snow by walking into the kitchen. You know those two things have occurred, but just because one occurred after another on a timeline, it doesn't mean they're linked in any way. And I would suggest if you rub, rub magnesium paste on your leg and then your your medial tibial stress syndrome disappears, you could be potentially committing the same error in thinking just because it felt better after you did something, it doesn't mean that that actually helped. And there's a great paper out there called uh, which is well written, and and I think run It would be. It's open access, so anyone can access it on the internet, and it's not written in a language that I think would terrify a non a non medical professional or a non scientist. And it's called "Why Do uh, Ineffective Treatments Work." I would encourage all runners to read it because there are some things that have very little evidence base for working, but uh, but runners swear by them working. Um, and I think you know when you're going on the internet, what you need to bear in mind is you're you're getting input from. Runners that may have had the same problem as you. They think they have, but they may not have because problems are different just because they sound like they manifest in the same way. And someone telling you what worked for them, whether that's true or not, doesn't mean it will work for you. Whether that be what they did, you know, what they, uh, what, what shoe they changed to, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, again, I, I, I'd love the idea of there being a really well-policed um, website where people could go. Um, but the reality is the best way, if, if at all possible, is to get some kind of individual um, sort of advice and information.
0: I, I agree. And I think there's also such a benefit to having that outside perspective, um, because I think we're terrible at following our own advice. <laughs> and recently, I've, I've been trying to rehab my own injury. And, you know, I'm, I'm technically doing what's right, but because it's my own injury I will I still push it a little bit further whereas if someone was telling me exactly what to do I think I'd listen a lot more so I think you know doctors need doctors physios probably need their own physios and just having that that person with the outside perspective and not wrapped up in all the emotion that's associated with injury is really helpful as well
1: totally agree and I think I don't think you need to be a runner to treat runners but I think it helps significantly. Um, you know, you yeah. you could be incredibly knowledgeable with regards to your anatomy, your physiology. You could be an incredible medic or physiotherapist or podiatrist, and you've never run a day in your life. And if someone comes in, you you could you could clear the red flags. You could formulate a medical diagnosis. You could you could essentially formulate some kind of management plan. I'm not saying you couldn't do that, but would you know what that person thinking and feeling? Do you understand Mm -hmm. why they behave the way they behave? And the answer is if you're not a runner yourself, you probably don't. Whereas if you're a runner, someone's sitting there and you listen to the errors they're making and you're trying to advise them on not making them, but you feel a little bit hypocritical because you're like, I've made this error myself. Um, You're absolutely (laughs) right. I I always say to runners, like, don't think I'm sitting in an ivory tower, like the perfect uh, example of how to train. Like I get injured. I make, I make training error. Um, I sometimes don't sleep as well as I could. I sometimes don't prioritise the big the big pebbles. Um, so don't think I, I'm I'm sort of um, you know looking down. You know these are this is two runners talking. But I, I just want you to know that I, I I understand you. I get you. I know why you do what you do.
0: Um, and finally, I was just hoping if we could um, briefly touch on the topic of orthotics, what they are and uh, how they can be used for running, particularly obviously an in injury.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, and again, this is something that there's a lot of myths about and a lot of misconceptions. And, and you know, you speak to most runners and they've had some kind of experience with these. They've, they've heard of them or they've, they've been given them in the past or maybe they know they know someone who's, who's had them. Um, and it sort of comes back to, I guess, what we said a little bit with regard to the running shoes, which is sometimes you're advised that you need something at that time. Um, and then rightly or wrongly, usually wrongly, you're, you're of the belief that that's a life sentence forever. Um mm-hmm. now, unfortunately, of course, there's there's a there's a whole sort of uh historical paradigm out there that sort of undermines what I'm about to say. And it's the reason why why people's beliefs about foot orthoses are a bit bit off off base. But you've seen the before and after image of the foot in the the the, the evil air quotes pronated position and then it's sitting on an orthosis and it's in a beautiful vertical, well-aligned position. And it's it's almost like um and there's no science behind that image, by the way. Um it's almost like someone so at some point in time sold sold the problem to the to the to the society in turn, so that they could then sell them the solution. So the first thing to say about you know feet being in certain positions, they they don't consistently and predictably guarantee you're going to get injured. So if you're uninjured and your foot's in a certain position, and someone tells you that's going to cause injury, we need to correct you and put you in a different position. Um, I would I would suggest um, that you might be being given slightly out of date advice there. Secondly, when we when we've looked at how orthoses work, so what their mechanisms of effect are, what they actually do, um, it seems that they don't predictably consistently realign people either in the way that before and after image promises. Um, and they're much better thought of present day. Our interpretation of the the, the the literature present day is to think of them as as devices which modify load. Rather than to think of them as arch supports or braces, they don't hold the foot. Anyone that wears them knows that you can you can still move your foot around on top of them. So they don't brace the foot, they don't immobilize the foot. Um, and I would just think of them as, as another tool that can modify load or redistribute pressure, for example. Um, and once you get out of the mindset of these things being corrective devices, once you move away from it being framed as you're in a bad alignment and these things will put you in a good alignment, if you can move away from that and you can you can sort of embrace that these things are a tool that we sometimes give to people to offload a sore tissue. In, in the same way that we kind of talked about pathology-specific prescribing for the running shoes, you know, sometimes you might want a high drop or wide toe box. There are certain um scenarios where you might want something in the shoe to further offload one of the big tendons for example Um, it's a snapshot in time scenario and it doesn't necessarily mean because you've been given it that it's a life sentence if you think this thing corrects you or realigns you it makes sense that you'd be terrified to ever take it out again but if it's been framed that you've got a sore tendon this is going to offload this tendon in the short term um the absolute long-term goal is to remove this device and build up the strength and capacity of that tendon and to re-educate that you, that you don't make the same uh, training error that annoyed this tendon in the first place then then i think we're in a in a much much better position so i would say to people they think of them as as, as one of the tools that we use to to rehab or offload uh, sensitive tissues, they are not always a life sentence in the way that they were always thought. That said, little ca- little caveat, of course, um, there are some scenarios where you will need to wear them long term, as there is with all these things. Um, but they aren't for everyone. And at the same time, if we use that kind of false dichotomy model of you know, it's not true that everyone needs orthoses, but it's also not true. That no one needs orthoses. <clears throat> you know, we 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 live in the nuanced middle ground here, where at a certain moment in time, for a certain individual, they might be an appropriate part of the rehabilitation strategy, but they are only a part of it. You know, if someone ever gives you orthoses, tells you that you need to wear them for a long period of time with no real plan, and you're not also being asked to see their physiotherapy colleague for the accompanying rehabilitation and and, and homework to do, um, then that's a, a little bit. That, that level of care is probably a bit less than you deserve as a runner.
0: That's really useful to know. And actually it's something I don't know too much about. I've never had to use them. So that's why I wanted to,
1: what, to ask, because yeah.
0: I know there's a lot of misconceptions around them. Um, thank you so much for chatting with me. Definitely a lot of food for thought there. Is there anything else you want to add or uh, any information you want to share?
1: Um, no, I would I would just encourage all runners to, to be reminded that the 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 human body in general but certainly the lower limb the foot the ankle the leg but but your entire body is an amazing an amazing i was about to call it a machine probably better thought it's an amazing ecosystem it is robust it is resilient and it is adaptive it is incredibly capable of of tolerating the loads and the, the demands that we place on it as long as we do those in sensible ways so i see so much stuff in the world of the foot and ankle whether it be you know, you're know you in a bad alignment, you're in a bad posture, you need orthoses, you need stability running shoes. And all of those things undermine the fact of, that we should be reminding ourselves that we're robust, resilient, and adaptive. And they sort of seem to promote feelings of fragility and, and mm-hmm. hypervigilance and catastrophization. And, and I think those things are really negative things to think about your body, particularly as, as a runner. So you've got to train smart, You can't train like a maniac you've got to you you can't cheat the the biology and the physics of the situation but if you're training well you're being smart and um you're sleeping well and you're eating well um then then i think you're in a really really good place don't don't think you can ignore all those things injure yourself or, or you know overload your tissues and then search for the magic cure um you know on the internet uh, and the magic cure being a compression sock or foam rolling or this shoe or that shoe i mean again the cure of most problems is, or the, the way out of most problems is usually a modified version of, of the way into those problems um, so for example we always talk about running tendons being um the biggest problem we, or the biggest thing we see tendons get annoyed by is load sudden unexpected uh, load that they weren't prepared for the way you move your way away from having tendon problems is to slowly and gradually expose yourself to load um you know you don't rest tendons you load them progressively so the idea of massage or foam rolling or xyz being the way out of a problem is is probably not addressing what got you into the problem in the first place and therefore you're possibly more likely for that to be a, a recurring issue so remind yourself that you need to do the big things the big smart boring things consistently with with monotonous and dull repetition um the human body is an amazing amazing thing that's robust and resilient don't don't stress out too much about the way your foot behaves um you know it's it's probably not as big a deal as people have made out uh, but at the same time if you're worried about it or if you rightly or wrongly think it does correlate then then it's okay to to see someone and have a chat about it as well
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. And if people do want to find you and find uh, your podcast and all the information um, that you've got out there on Instagram, where, where should they head?
1: Yes. So if you uh, Instagram is where I hang out the most, uh, like most people in, in, in this in this era. Um, and if nothing else, you can come and see my collection of running shoes myself because I, I, <laughs> I, I put them all <laughs> on there. Um, so my Instagram handle is sports podiatry info. Um, and it's basically a collection of my running shoes and some infographics that I do, which kind of touch on some of these regular myths. And I try and frame them in a way that they're they're accessible to all, to runners and to fellow professionals. And we, we touch on things like why you shouldn't be worried if someone's called you a pronator, um, why the term overpronation um, should be discontinued because it's a poor term, Um you know things like when should you replace your running shoes so a lot of the stuff we've touched on i've 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 developed infographics with links to some of the uh, the science behind it so yeah sports podiatry info on instagram is um it's kind of where i hang
0: great thank you so much for chatting with me thanks
1: for having me thank you
0: so i hope that was a really useful discussion for everyone listening as ian said you can find him on instagram by searching sports podiatry info and you can follow me using the handle at marathon medic thanks so much for listening